That's what we do. Hebrews chapter 6, let's begin in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it's all that we need in our lives and more. And we don't even know the fullness of how much more your word is than what we need because we're, we don't have uh, all knowledge like you do. But we know it is sufficient to have you build, build into our lives for every purpose that you have for it. And we know that it will accomplish every one of those purposes, that you'll hit that bullseye every single time. So we're grateful for your word, Lord. We don't want to be hearers only, though. We want to be doers of it. So we pray that you'd help our hearts to be ready to receive, ready to obey whatever you say. And we pray that your spirit would be our teacher and that he would instruct us uniquely on how we can apply these things to our lives. We thank you that you want to use these verses today in all the different ways that you have intended for us to bring us more and more closer to to the image of Christ. We thank you that you want to conform us into the image of Christ and make us more like him. What a privilege that is, Lord. So we thank you we get to do it together in total unity, by your spirit, and in love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Almost made it through that. Well, if you listen to uh, Bible call-in programs like the Bible Answer Man or To Every Man an Answer or Pastor's Perspective or, you know, if I were hosting a show, it'd be like the, the Bible Unanswer Man or something. I don't know what it would be. Uh, but if you listen to those, those Bible call-in shows, uh, almost every single time, I mean, t- every single session or whatever the three-hour block would be, inevitably you hear someone ask, can I lose my salvation? Or can a Christian, uh, you know, hear the word of God, receive the word of God in the gospel, become regenerated, become a new creation, and then subsequent, uh, in some part of their life or some event that happens or, or down the road in their Christian walk, somehow they can become unsaved or, or lose their salvation. So that's what we want to look at. And it's very controversial. I'm, I'm aware of that. Some of you are very thankful you're not me today, <laughs> having to deal with this issue. But um, you're also thankful because you don't have to be the one says, that says bad jokes up here. So you're always thankful for that. So this is nothing new for you to, to, to not be me up here or not want to be me. But yes, it is controversial. And there's many, many opinions, even in Calvary Chapel. Pastors differ and have various views on this. It's not a Calvary distinctive in the sense that you have to believe a certain way to become affiliated or remain affiliated within the Calvary Chapel movement. There is latitude related to that. And so I recognize that this morning. And I recognize that everybody else that contradicts what I believe is wrong. No, I'm just kidding. But... uh, (laughs) Uh, I'm just kidding, but that there is different views on it. I recognize that, and and so, but I I, I have to do the best that I can do related to uh, the passage because that's my role. And so, you know, I aim to look at it res- um, responsibly, carefully, and obviously, most importantly, biblically, to be able to look at uh, the, uh, the 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 passage and the subject. Um, because every week that I'm up here, any time a teacher of God's word in any context is teaching God's people the word of God, there needs to be a healthy sobriety and, and fear, a, a reverence for that position or that role. Uh, because James tells us by the Spirit that, that teachers will endure a stricter judgment. I want to put that on a little plaque up here that I, you know, and I'm, I'm dead serious. I want to have a plaque up here. Uh, to be able to remind myself of that stricter judgment. I fear this role. I really do. And so I take that responsibility very seriously. 
And so I want to just look at the subject and I want to try to do it in a responsible way. I recognize that other leaders and commentaries and other people in the body of Christ have, have uh, various views on it. And that's, that's okay. There is, um, there is liberty there. I want us to turn to John chapter 3. Uh, we will come back to Hebrews, but we'll be looking at a lot of passages. And we may go a little longer, so I'm warning you. Uh, we may not, but we'll see. As they say, you know what these clocks mean, right? These, these stopwatches. Absolutely nothing. That's right. And I'm um, just kidding. We do use it. I better start it, actually. There you go. Uh, <laughs> see, today it would have meant nothing. Uh, so let's turn to John 3, and, and I, I want to look at the whole subject of, I want to look at two subjects today, really, because one, the, the first subject is the security of the believer, and the second subject is, uh, you know, how to, not how to, like I'm going to lead you there, but how a person becomes apostate, or how, you, how do you apostatize, and so forth, because they're two separate issues as far as I can see it. And so, um, as you're turning to John 3, you need to know that the Bible, the New Testament specifically, emphasizes the security of the believer. The subject of apostasy doesn't come up very often anywhere close to how often it, the, the subject of the security of the believer comes up, uh, in, in Scripture, and, and that's not by accident. Uh, if you remember in, in Ephesians chapter 6, we're told one of the, the parts of our armor, so to speak, the armor of God that we're supposed to walk in, you know, part of that is the helmet of salvation. And there's a reason why uh, we have a helmet, so to speak, that we put on our heads is because we need to be reassured of the security of the believer and reassured of our salvation. And God does a masterful job all through the New Testament of encouraging his people in, in this, how secure they are in their salvation. So I want to read a few verses in John and then some other places. Look at John chapter 3 and let's begin in verse 14. It says, And as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So belief is directly tied to everlasting life. And I think virtually all of us know that. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to trust. It's conditional. Reformed theology or Calvinists believe it's unconditional. That God comes along and he, apart from the person even knowing it, comes and puts his spirit inside someone, gives them the capacity to have faith and repentance, and they are born again. And so it's totally unconditional. They have nothing to do with it whatsoever. We don't believe that. We believe that the Bible teaches that we have a responsibility because he judges man for that responsibility and holds him accountable for that responsibility and to, to believe, to trust. And it's not a matter of works because he says that faith is not the same as works. It's something that it's how we appropriate uh, God's sal salvation. So it happens by trusting in Jesus. Now go to John chapter 5. And I want to be read verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life shall not, and, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to, into life. So Jesus is speaking there. He who hears my word, believes in him who has sent me, has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, pass from death to life. It happens in a moment in time. Okay? Now, look in chapter 6 there, down, down the column or on the next side of the page or the next page, however your Bible is laid out, John chapter 6. And I want to begin reading in verse 37. Jesus again. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that, all, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So Jesus is saying there's a certain finite number and all that God has given me, I won't lose, and so forth, okay? So that's established, and that's very comforting. Now I want us to turn to John chapter 10. Verse 
And then let's begin reading in verse 27. Jesus speaking again. says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now that set of verses, verses 27 through 29, is probably the main passage that we would look to to be encouraged related to the security of the believer. Jesus says, they hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, and so forth. And, and, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand as well. And so that communicates to us incredible safety. We are secure in Jesus' hands. And, and so that brings us tremendous comfort as believers. And, and God knows we need that comfort. We need to have that comfort that God's going to work how he works and we're going to be protected in his hand. And two more scriptures. I'd like us to turn over to Romans. should hear more rustling of pages. I'm telling you, I just have this sense. There should be more rustling of maybe have your Kindle or your iPad so I can't hear the, the screens change and everything. There's grace for that. But uh, I know that all of you don't have a lot of, you know, iPads and so forth. So I want you to see this for yourself. It's important. Romans chapter 8. And I want to begin reading in verse 35. Paul speaking by the Spirit, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he says, God's love for us is is sufficient, it's constant, there's nothing we can do to interrupt God's love for us, and that brings tremendous comfort and encouragement to us, because we we waver on that at times. I mean, even the best of us at times may may, uh, waver on, oh, does God really love me? Is he for me? You know, because we know that we fail, we fall short at times. The last passage, at least for now, I want you to look at is Philippians chapter 1. Go over to Philippians. There's more wrestling there. That's good. Don't feel bad if you have the tabs, you know, that tells you what book. You know, there's no condemnation in any of that. You can have all the tabs you want. Tabs are good. There's freedom for tabs. (laughs) Philippians chapter 1, I want to read verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So very encouraging for us to see that. God's going to, he's going to work in such a way and he's going to complete what he's begun in us. So now turn back to Hebrews 6. And the question is, you know, well, in light of chapter 6 in Hebrews and, and in light of these verses that we looked at, how do we make sense of apostasy? What about apostasy? You know, and, and that's what I want to look at. So there's four main views related to our verses this morning. There's four main views of what this passage means. And I want you to be familiar with them or at least know, know them. And the first view of these four is that the, the writer is addressing professors. And we're not talking about those that are educated in academia and teach and so forth. Not those kind of professors. Uh, the ones that that claim to know Christ, but don't really know Christ. And there's a reason why, as we've studied through this book of Hebrews, I've pointed out almost every single time why these people are, or or that these people are believers. And, and, And in part I did that because I knew we were coming to this passage. And I knew that one of these views related to Hebrews chapter 6 is that these people really never knew the Lord. And, and though this is just people that were around the things of the Lord, but didn't know the Lord. And that, I believe, is not the case. Because I pointed out over and over again, 
And we just looked at it a couple weeks ago. Let's move on from the elementary principles of baptisms and the resurrection and all these things into maturity. He's already told them, in fact, we'll see the verse later in the book uh, today, uh, that they've already experienced persecution. He's already called them believers multiple times. He's called them brothers far beyond just saying they're Jewish brothers. He's, I mean, you don't give people, talk about milk and say that uh, by now you should be teachers, if he's talking to people that didn't know the Lord. He's saying, you already should be teachers by now. And, and, and so they've already gone over this over and over again with this writer. They, they know that they, they, they know him. We know that, that, that they're uh, true believers. We've seen that over and over again. But those that hold to a once saved, always saved view, many times use the fact that they're not really believers, they're professors, to try to explain these verses. And I just don't think that if you're looking at the totality of Hebrews, you can't legitimately say that. It's, not, it's disingenuous or at least uh, you know, erroneous for sure that these, these are clearly believers. The things that you say that he says to these people are you'd never say to unbelievers. You would never ever in a million years say that. And we'll look over that uh, a little bit more in depth in a moment. The second view is that this is all hypothetical. That you can't really do this, but if you could do this, this is what, how God would, would, would uh, apply his truth to it. Now, I don't know, when it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, all means all. Every single verse has an application to it in our lives. Because if he has a hypothetical situation that isn't really true or isn't based in reality, then there's no application for today. He doesn't waste any words. He doesn't waste any verses. He says what he means, and he means what he says. And you just can't make any sense. There'd be, whole, there'd be no motivation, legitimate motivation, for telling them that this is a hypothetical situation, that there's no possibility that this could happen, but, you know, I want you to know this theory, <laughs> you know, because there'd be no application for it. So I, I don't believe that. The third uh, view of this passage is that this is speaking about Christians, but it's talking about them not going into maturity, and which is true, but that the only thing that they're at risk of is discipline, that God's going to discipline them and so forth. And the reason why I reject that is because of the language that he uses. He makes it very clear, especially in our verses today, when he's talking about the, the thorns and so forth that are no good except to throw into the fire. That's a clear indication that he's talking about something more than just being disciplined by the Lord. And, and so I'll give you my other reasons for it in a moment. The fourth and last way, main way that people look at this is that um, talking about apostasy where, where a Christian can uh, lose their salvation. And I don't exactly hold to that view. Um, it's, it's close, but uh, we'll look at that in a moment. So those are the main four Views. Now, I want us to look at the description of these people in verses 4 and 5. Notice he, first, he says in verse 4 that they're enlightened. Now, again, you would never say this of an unbeliever. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, this. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've clearly been enlightened. And he uses the same word, just if you are taking notes, he uses the same word to a, in, in Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 32, to tell them that they were uh, illuminated. He says in chapter 10, verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you were endured a great struggle with sufferings. So he's going to tell them and use the same Greek word in chapter 10, you were Ill illuminated. And because of that, after that, they had suffered as a result of persecution. Nobody suffers persecution if they don't know the Lord in terms of being identified with Christ. That's one of the ways that you, you know, show yourself to not be a, a believer is that you're not willing to, to endure persecution. All through the history of God's people, believers endure persecution. They know they can't deny the Lord, and, and so they endure that. And so they'd already struggled with that. So this is talking about believers. And notice also in verse 4, they're described as those who have tasted the heavenly gift. 
Now, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us that salvation is a gift, that we don't earn it, that we receive it by faith. It's something that we received. And so he's talking about the singular, if you notice there, it says the singular gift there. And, and that's the same verbiage in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he uses the word tasted. Notice it's in the past tense. They've tasted. This is something that's already occurred. It's not something that's happening currently in their life. They've already tasted something. It's in the past tense. Now, sometimes people will object to what this is clearly saying by saying, well, they tasted it, but they didn't ingest it. You know, they sampled the gospel, but they spit it out, so to speak. But the problem with that is that in chapter 2, verse 9, the writer uses the same word to uh, talk about Jesus' death. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus didn't sample death for everyone (laughs) and then spit it out. He tasted it. He consumed it. So clearly this is not speaking about just somebody that heard the gospel, didn't like, wasn't palatable for them, and they just spit it out. He also, uh, number three, describes them as partakers of the Holy Spirit in verse four. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. Are you really going to call an unbeliever someone that has, has been a partaker of the Holy Spirit? In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we're told, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So we're told that when we receive Christ, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And and so we are partakers of the Holy Spirit. That is not going to happen for an unbeliever. They're not going to be partakers. They're going to get convicted by the Spirit, because the Spirit in part has been sent to convict the world of sin. So yes, they get convicted, but they don't, they're not partakers of the Holy Spirit in the sense that believers get to. He also says there in verse 5 that they tasted the good word of God. In other words, they've experienced the word of God to the extent that they can know and verify that it's good. And so unbelievers don't do that. And then lastly in verse 5, he says they've experienced the powers of the age to come. I don't see how you can say that. I mean, the writer went out of his way to say this person knows the Lord. He gives a laundry list or a grocery list or whatever, a list of this per, these people. So just so we wouldn't misunderstand, he could have just said one of those things. But he goes multiple things for us to know this person is a true believer. So I believe this is describing what I believe is an apostasy, a Christian who rejects Christ. Now, all through the book of Hebrews, we've looked at it. And if you're just looking at these verses and you haven't studied all the way through up to this point, you're not going to fully appreciate when I say that we've seen over and over again they were at risk of denying the Lord and going back to Judaism, back under the law. They were experiencing persecution, uh, potentially false teaching about angels and so forth. That whole temple was up going full steam ahead. The high priest was offering sacrifices. They're meeting in homes which clearly uh, could look inferior to other Jews for sure and potentially to their own lives. We left this bit in this amazing temple for what? To meet in little homes? You know, and that whole sacrificial system was still going. Now it was only going to be going for another three to four years or so and then then Roman, you know, the Romans would come in and destroy it. So they had no idea that that thing was, was going to be completely ending. So these believers were contemplating going back to Judaism. You can't go back to Judaism without denying Jesus. Today, if you, the, 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 the thing that identifies you in many ways as a, as a Jew is someone that is still waiting for their Messiah, that the Messiah has not come yet. You can't say that if you're a Christian. And so they would have to reject Christ there. I don't like the whole verbiage of lose your salvation. As it's been said, if, if a person can, can do that, then it would be something that they would leave. Because when you lose something, it's, 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 not, it's by accident. You don't lose your keys on purpose, usually. You don't lose your mind on purpose. Uh, you, you just misplace something. It's not a willful thing. And, and what he's describing here is something that these Hebrew believers were contemplating, and it was something that was going to be very volitional. 
something that they, they were contemplating and, and going to make a, a very determined, willful decision to do. And that's what he's warning against, I believe. So apostasy, is, as I see it, is willfully rejecting Christ by ceasing to believe anymore. It's not, it's not about do, uh, committing certain sins. That's something that is not tolerated within Calvary Chapel. You can't say that if I commit a certain sin that automatically I've lost my salvation. Jesus paid for all of our sins on that cross. He said, for it is finished. All, those, all our sin debt was paid on that cross. So the other view is, well, I mean, maybe it's not certain sins, but if I don't repent of my sin before I die, then I'm not going to go to heaven. That is just as damaging. Do you realize how perfect the standard is for perfection? I mean, we fall short all the time, way more than we uh, let on for sure to other people, but even admit to ourselves. I mean, the standard is flawless perfection. And so we fall short of that all the time. Are you telling me God's going to determine whether or not I, I end up in heaven as a Christian based on whether or not I confess all my sins? There's sins that I commit I don't even know I, I commit. And so there's, we would be basket cases worrying about every little thing that we possibly do to make sure that we confess every single sin. When we confess our sins to God, like we're told in 1 John 1, 9, it's about fellowship with God. As if when I did something against you, that relationship wouldn't have the same effect until we confess our sins to one another. And, and not the Lord to us, obviously, but us to the Lord. But just like in a real relationship, there has to be that confession before that fellowship can be where, what it's supposed to be. So it has nothing to do with my positional standing when I confess my sins to the Lord. So we don't believe that. We don't believe it's certain sins. We don't believe it's not confessing. But it's, it's just what this book has been saying all along, is we can't reject Christ. We have to believe in Jesus Christ all the way to our last breath. Now, before you panic and think, oh, no, that's really hard to do. No, it's not hard to do. If you're a Christian, it's very easy to do, to believe. But he doesn't say that it's impossible to, to, to you know, apostatize and leave. He gives examples in Scripture of men, Paul does, that have departed from the, the faith. So it, if you look at all those verses that I gave you in John that we read together, if you look at those verbs, and I have, I've looked at every single verb, and you look at the participles and so forth that have tenses and everything, it's all present tense. It's all talking about present tense believing. His expectation for us, church, is for us to continuously believe in him. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't a moment in time that we receive salvation and we're regenerated. That happens, so don't misunderstand me. But there is, we still requires us to continue to believe, and it's not a hard thing, it's not a burdensome thing. But he's already talked about in the book of Hebrews the deceitfulness of sin. He says, see to it, brethren, that none of you are found with a sinful, unbelieving heart or wicked heart that turns away or departs from the living God. And so we're going to get into the specifics of that uh, a little bit later. But all these tenses are in the present tense. And I want to read you the passage, the verses that we looked at earlier. Not all of them, but just the one in John chapter 10. And I want to read it, read it to you from the Greek and hear the difference of these present tense verbs and participles. Jesus said, My sheep are hearing my voice. I am knowing them, and they are following me. I am giving them eternal life. That's literally what it says. They're not past tense verbs. They're present tense verbs. We need to stand in our faith and still continue to believe. And so, again, I don't want you to misunderstand me. It's a moment in time. That, that happens, that we get regenerated, but God still says that kind of faith needs to continue to believe, and that's very important for us to see. We're told in Hebrews chapter 3, in fact, why don't you turn there to Hebrews chapter 3. There's some verses, there's three verses, or actually two verses that I want you to see. We've already looked at one of them, and we're about to get to another one uh, in the next week. Hebrews chapter 3, I want you to look at with me at verse 12. And I just alluded to it, but I want you to see it. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of, in any of you an evil heart of, of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, he's talking to believers. Verse 14. 
For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. I want you to notice the last three words of that verse. To the end. To the end of what? To the end of our, our pilgrimage on this, in this world. We need to hold our confidence steadfast to the end. That's what these Hebrews, we've seen it in context. That's what they were in danger of, of not holding fast their confidence to the end and turning away from Christ and going back to Judaism. Now, look in, in Hebrews 6, few pages over. He says it again. Look at verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. So we need to follow through with our faith until the end. There's, there's true perseverance of the saints. It's trusting in Christ and believing in him all the way to the end. And you, if you think that this may just be in Hebrews, turn over to Colossians uh, chapter 1. There's only a handful of these more that I'll have you turn to, but I want you to see it for yourself. Colossians chapter 1. I want to begin in verse 21. Paul writing by the Spirit, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, verse 23, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Notice he says, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. If that was an automatic thing, he wouldn't be telling them to not move away. And he tells them, don't move away. You stay, you stay grounded in faith in the hope of the gospel which you heard. Now I want us to also turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 5, Peter by the Spirit says, talking about us, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's two things I want to point out in that verse. One is salvation is not just communicated in receiving at the moment of salvation when we get regenerated. It's also communicated in, in, uh, you know, at the end, at the end of our lives when we get our new bodies. And so we're told that we are saved in a moment in time. Then we are being saved. There's a process of sanctification where he makes us more like Christ. And then there's a point where we will be saved, where we receive our new bodies. That's what Peter is talking about. Through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. What's ready to be revealed? Talking about when we get our new bodies. That, that part of the salvation. When we get our new bodies, when everything is revealed in the end. And notice, we are kept, yes, by the power of God. But what's the instrumental aspect of that? Through faith. God keeps us through, when we have faith in him, he keeps us in, in a commensurate way with the faith that we have in him. Now, obviously, he keeps us beyond uh, the, our faith for him because he's a, a keeping God. He keeps us, he does his part. So, but he also uses our faith to keep us as well. So don't, don't uh, think that it's completely just on his end. He honors our faith in him and he uses that in part to keep us. And, and that's a beautiful thing, and it brings incredible uh, encouragement. I want to read some other passages, just a few others related to apostasy. One is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, where we're told, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now it doesn't say they departed from the things concerning the faith, or they departed from being around the faith. It says they departed from the faith itself. And they give heed to doctrine of demons. Also, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, some people point out that verse 13 there, that he is 
if we are faithless, he remains faithful, that somehow that negates verse 12. But as someone has said, he, he's going to remain the, the ultimate constant in life, I mean, in the universe. He, doesn't, he can't deny himself. He is who he is, and because he is who he is, if we deny him, he will honor that choice. And so because he is uh, you know, a faithful God that cannot deny himself, that actually necessitates him honoring our choice if we uh, apostatize. Lastly, I'll uh, turn over to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. I shouldn't say lastly, there'll be a couple more. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 20 and, uh, through 22 says, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through knowledge of the Lord, of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are, again, they are again, notice the word again, entangled in them and overcome, the latter is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow being, having washed to her uh, wallowing in the mire. So that's obvious a picture of someone that's known the Lord. Uh, you can't have known, known by experience, that's the word know means, know by experience the way of, of righteousness and then turn away and, and have it be good for you. Uh, that's not the picture that we see. Now, the big question is, okay, you've laid out the, the case for apostasy there, but what about those scriptures in John? Besides the present tense verbs and so forth, what about just the content of, of those uh, passages? How do you make sense of all of it related to not being able to be snatched from his hand? And the way that I, I uh, do that in my mind and those that um, have the same view is thinking of it in the context of a threat from without. Because the, the, you remember the context there, the, the, the people were, of course, afraid of Satan, afraid of the Romans, afraid of Pharisees, afraid of demons, afraid of anybody that could possibly get in the way of their relationship with God. And so the way that you reconcile, because you have to be, you know, you have to believe all the scriptures. You have to reconcile all of the scriptures together. A, a, a very important uh, principle of Bible interpretation, proper Bible interpretation, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So I have to be able to make sense of all of it and make it all fit together. And the only way that I can do that in those verses that talk about no one can snatch us out of, out of his hand and so forth and these other ones is that he was talking about a threat from without, that, that he wouldn't even dream that we would do that ourselves. He's not even assuming that that would be on our radar screen. That it's a threat from without, that, that Satan can't pluck you out of my hand. The Pharisees can't. Rome can't. Nobody from without can possibly remove you from my hand. And, and so that's, that's the way that you do that. You, you know that he's going to do his part. And that's what I believe those passages are saying. He's not going beyond your part. I mean, going into what your part is, he's saying, this is my part. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to lose you. I'm going to do my part to hold on to you. I'm going to do my part to protect you from any threat from without. I'm going to do my part in bringing your faith to completion. I began a good work in you. I'm going to complete it. Now, obviously, the inference is given the chance. I mean, if you uh, apostatize, he doesn't have the chance to do that. He honors our free will. And I think that's kind of what it all comes back to. Remember, I said salvation, uh, we believe it's conditional. We don't believe that God just sovereignly comes in and regenerates a person and chooses some people to go to heaven and some people not to go to heaven. It's conditional. We have to believe. So he honors our free will. He's even willing to let people go to hell for all eternity to honor that free will. What makes us think that he's going to take that away once we come to know him? He's going to take away our will and force us to go to heaven if we don't want to go. I used to think, I wish that once saved, always saved was true because I want to believe that there's nothing that I possibly can ever do, of course. But then I started thinking about it and I started thinking, no, I don't want it that way because I want people in heaven that want to be there for one. But number two is that I want to have faith in God all through my Christian pilgrimage. I want to honor him with my faith. I don't want to be locked into where I have no, I have no capacity to not have faith in him. I want to have that choice. 
It's, it's, it's important to him that we have a choice to worship him, to know him, and so forth, instead of being robots. He doesn't make us a robot, a Christian robot, once we become to know him. And all through this whole book of Hebrews, if you take the position that, that, you, know, that you can't ever uh, leave your salvation or apostatize, then what was all this ma- massive warning that we've seen all the way through the book? It's some serious warning, see? In our passage, he talks about, you know, they're, they're going to crucify the Son of God all over again. If God was going to take away our free will and, and make us be like on autopilot all the way through, do you think he would, you know, allow that to happen and, and just, you know, discipline them? He's going to allow us to, or make it to where we don't ever do anything even close to that. But he hasn't done that. Now notice uh, in, in, in verse 6, he talks about the apostate is not going to come back. Now, this is important for us to understand. He says in Hebrews 6, verse 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify, notice the word, next word, again for themselves, the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. Now, we can just pass over, crucify the Son of God again real quickly. That's a big deal. That's a big deal to God. I mean, that was a big sacrifice. We can't even comprehend that sacrifice. And here, whoever this person is, and I believe it's, it's you know, believers that apostatize, they are actually crucifying the Son of God all over again. And, and I think that, that the, the significance of that and the, the brevity of that is so huge that it'd be easy to pass over. But he says, they are not coming back. He says, it's impossible for them to come back. So that, that begs the question, how does that happen? How do I do that? How does a person get to that point? Well, I believe that their conscience is seared, and the Bible talks about that, so that they won't repent. Now, this isn't talking about professors that never knew Christ, as we talked about. There are people among us, maybe even here today, that, that don't know the Lord. Maybe they say they know the Lord. Maybe they are convinced they know the Lord. I just talked to someone this week that uh, were, was part of our school of ministry that just realized no one that attends here, by the way, that just attend our school of ministry. But uh, he moved away and so forth. He contacted me and said, I wasn't even a Christian then. I thought I was. And the heart is, is deceitful. And, and sometimes we don't even know our own heart. So there are people that we look at and go, oh, well, you know, they, they, they fell away or didn't fall away, but they didn't even know the Lord. And so that, we know that that happens. I'm not denying that. But there's also the backslider. And this, the reason why I bring this up is because the backslider it can be worried about their spiritual uh, condition and think that they've somehow committed the unpardonable sin or they've done something, they've messed up too many times, and, and this is talking about them. But that's not the case. Because if you care about this at all whatsoever, you're proving that you're not an apostate because an apostate wouldn't care. Apostate denies everything about the Lord. Most backsliders will defend Christ to the death. They will maintain their position that Jesus is Lord, and he died on the cross, and they're just not living for him. But they still believe. It's not talking about that person, because they can always repent and come back. This is a person that's crossed that line, and now they won't repent. They won't come back, and, and, and they've passed the point of no return. So if a person is worried about it, it just proves that they're not one of, that, one of those people. And, and, and so, but we do see that if they are one of those people, they are not coming back. The end is certain for them. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. What he's saying here is their end is the lake of fire, and it's important for us to see this, and it's justified. Just like thorns and briars and so forth, weeds, whatever, they don't produce uh, fruit. Because of that, they're thrown into the fire. No one gets mad at that action. It's appropriate. No one blames the rain. No one blames uh, whoever threw it into the fire. The, 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 the issue is it's a problem with what it is. It, it's not the right thing. And because of that, it, it receives the, the, the retribution, so to speak, or the, the implications of, of its decision there or the person's decision. So that, that, that's the end, the lake of fire. Now, Jesus spoke something similar in John chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches, talking to disciples. 
You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. Now, abide means to, means to remain. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So fruit's very important to God. And so, but there is a place for a person if they, if they keep going the way that they're going over a long period of time, eventually they can cross that line. Now, for our last set of scriptures, I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 10. Let's begin reading in verse 28. Hebrews 10, 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? He says he was sanctified. Notice that. We don't ever talk about unbelievers being sanctified. That means to be set apart. And he says, how much worse punishment. It's very heavy. Now look at verse 35 of the same chapter. So he's telling these Jewish believers this. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence. That's talking about having faith. Which has great reward. For you have need of endurance. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. That's talking about having faith all the way to the end. For yet a little, a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. Again, it's faith from beginning to end. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And again, it's not talking about immediate regeneration, that kind of saving of the soul. It's talking about the kind of saving, the, the new body that we get and, and finishing well and finishing the race well and being promoted to our new bodies and all of that. That's what he's talking about. Now, as I close here, you may have your whole life have been taught that once saved, always saved. And you may still hold that position, and I respect that. And again, this is not a, an essential of the Christian faith. People differ on this. But I want, you to, I want you to be open to looking at the scriptures and studying this because uh, I've given you some pretty, I believe, significant scriptures. And you can't lose your salvation, but I believe you can leave it. You can legitimately apostatize. The entire book of Hebrews, as we've seen, is warning them to not go back. And he's used words like, how shall we escape? It's, it's a heavy thing. It's a serious thing. None of us should believe things just because we've heard it. And I've talked to a lot of people that are in the camp of the once saved, always saved. And many times, they've just, they're just repeating what they've heard from a surface level. They've never really studied it out. Study it out. See what the word of God truly says. Be open to that. Don't just rely. I mean, it's popular. It's in vogue. I mean, just about every commentary you read, it seems like nowadays, it has that position. And I don't, you know, ascribe to be more wise than them. But, I mean, there are other commentaries that believe the opposite. But don't just take it because it sounds good or you, your tradition has always believed that or your family told you that or, or even wishful thinking. Like, I just want to know that no matter what, uh, I'm, I'm secure in him. You are. And this is how I explain it to people. Picture losing your salvation or leaving your salvation and being an apostate is the equivalent of traveling from here in Manteca to San Diego. And you have to go, you can't fly, you have to go by the roads and so forth, and there's, there's, a, there's like eight hours from here, I think. And there's all kinds of roadblocks, the CHP has set up roadblocks and every possible thing that could get in the way of you reaching San Diego. I don't worry about ending up in San Diego by accident. I don't worry about it. It would take a long time of me going through roadblock after roadblock after roadblock for hours and hours and hours and hours to finally reach that destination. I'm very secure in not winding up in San Diego. Apostasy is rare, and it's very difficult to do. You have to blast through stop sign after stop sign, roadblock after roadblock, and purposely, willfully 
not repent of sin and having that deceive your heart over a period of time. And I think a lot of people that we may point to related to someone that may qualify as that as a person that probably never knew the Lord. I think that is very common. But God still, I believe in his word, says it is possible. It's rare, it's difficult, but it is possible. And I believe there's plenty of chances to repent. But if you take your last breath and you have not, you denied the Lord and you die in that condition, I don't believe, according to God's word, you can have confidence that you're going to be in heaven with, with, with God. I just don't believe it from his word. And I don't care how many people, how popular it is, how many people write about it, or how much we respect the people that teach it. I have to be honest with the whole counsel of God. And I just don't see it. All, even in the Old Testament, God respected people's rights to, to reject him or serve him, and he, and he didn't beg them. He respected their decision. And so when we get to heaven, it'll be people that had faith in him all the way through to the end. They held fast their confession to the end. Those three words we saw in two different verses, to the end. That's what the Hebrews needed to do. That's what we need to do. And there's a warning here for us because our faith is going one direction or the other. And if we are really flippant about our walk with the Lord, we have to be careful. There's, there's I mean, as rare as it might be and as difficult as it might be, we have to be careful to, to, to not go that direction, not even close. I don't even want to get on five or whatever it would be to go down to San Diego. I don't even want to get near that exit. I don't even want to, even though there'd be so many times for me to do a U-turn, I don't even want to get near that, that exit whatsoever. So there's a huge sense of security that we have. It doesn't minimize what Jesus said in all those verses. We are secure in our walk with the Lord. It's based on his faithfulness. It's based on his work on the cross. But he still calls us to have faith and to believe him. And, and to stand in that relationship, in a, you know, persevering in faith, believing that he really is the Messiah, he really did die for me on the cross, he really is the only way. And, and all these examples in scriptures of people leaving that and, and, and going and spreading false doctrine and all those things, they can't all be people that never knew the Lord. I mean, it just doesn't, isn't described in the New Testament. So he emphasizes the security of the believer. We believe that. We welcome those verses. We love those verses. And it may be that 99%, 99.9% of Christians, are, once they become no, to know Christ, are going to end up in heaven someday. But I think God still leaves the point one, or however rare it might be, to room that, to honor our will, to say, if you don't want to go, you don't have to. The, the invitation's there. You continue on the way that you're going. It's not difficult. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. <laughs> Maintaining your faith, believing in him, and so forth is not super hard. But I've given room for people that don't want it. And I think that he's going to honor his word. And I don't want to get in between his word and my life. How about you? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the sobriety of this passage. I thank you, Lord, that um, you're faithful. And no matter what position anyone takes on these things, we thank, we're thankful, Lord, that your grace is sufficient and your, and your uh, sacrifice that you made, Jesus, on that cross is sufficient. We thank you that you said it's finished, Lord. And we don't trust in ourselves. We trust in you. We trust in your sufficiency, Lord. We thank you that you're the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you that uh, you're going to finish this work that you began in us. Thank you that you're able to keep us from falling and stumbling, Lord. And thank you for giving us the free will to worship you and choose you all the way through the, to the end of our walk with you in this world, Lord. We know you value that, and so we value it. We thank you for the fact that you don't deal with us on the basis of our works or our performance, but you deal with us on the basis of grace. Use these verses to melt our hearts for you that we would never want to go any other direction but to follow hard after you. And we thank you for the privilege of it in Jesus' name. Amen.